0: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Rach Active Podcast. My name is Rach J. I am your host. I'm a coach and the founder of Core30. I am so excited to welcome our guest to the show today. Now, she is a professional badminton athlete. She is representing Australia at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. She's also represented the country at the 2014 and 2018 Commonwealth Games where they placed fourth. She's won a gazillion titles, including eight Oceania, championship titles, six in the women's doubles, two in the mixed doubles. She's also the champion of the Canadian Open and US International for the women's doubles in 2019, all at the age of 25. Welcome to the show, Gronja Somerville. Thank you for having me on the show. Good to be here. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to chat to you. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, Now, that's quite a resume you've got there at such a young age.
1: Yeah, um, it's not that impressive, Compared to some other players as well, like there's ones that peak super early and yeah, winning tournaments when they're 16 years old. So <laughs> everyone's <laughs> different. It's impressive
0: to me anyway. I feel like um, <laughs> it feels, it seems like there's just so many things that you've achieved and you know, you're so young. Um, and what I sort of researched about you, uh, you know, going into this is um, that you started your journey, you know, quite young in badminton, like 12, 13. And so, you know, I'm really curious to know that. Whether, you know, did you, did you know when you started that you were good at badminton? Or is this just something that kind of came up as a result of how you got
1: into it? Um, yeah, so I got into it a really weird way. So they, it was actually through a talent identification program. So um, like the Australian Sports Commission was funding badminton to have a talent search for girls my age, which was like 9 to 12 years old, who hadn't really played badminton before to try and find the next badminton star. And right. I'd been athletic in multiple other sports like tennis, swimming, athletics, gymnastics, kind of thing. But nothing had really um, caught my passion. Like, and like, I hadn't really decided I wanted to do one um, for sure. And so I got into this yeah program after the fitness testing day. And on that first day, when we had a hit, I was just like, I love this sport. This is what I want to do. So oh, it kind wow. of was. Yeah, it kind of just was like this is it once the first time I played it. It just kinda of clicked like that. So what is it about
0: Badminton in particular that you love? Because obviously, I mean, tennis is kind of similar in a way, but it but it is slightly different, obviously. So what is it about this particular sport that you that really took to you, I guess?
1: Um, the main thing that I love about it is that it has so many different facets. Like you have to have agility, you have to have speed, you have to have endurance because matches can go up to like two hours. Um, it's the fastest racket sh- uh, racket sport in the world going up to like 440 kilometers an hour. Um, yeah, you have to just have it all. And then there's also a huge tactical component as well. So I kind of... I have this analogy comparing it to tennis where I say tennis is more 2D because you're like hitting the shut, uh, hitting the ball like flat along the court and it's like you can go straight and go cross. Yeah, there's some spins, but that's about it. Whereas badminton has this whole overhead game. So you're playing like, the kind of tennis serve shot a lot often. And from there, you can hit it high and loopy. You can go short. So in that um, aspect, there's much more um, tactical decision-making because from each shot, you have so many more options. And that's one thing that I love so much about it is like the tactical side of it. Cool. So
0: there's kind of like this strategy, like kind of... um decision-making, I guess, that has to happen in the moment for you to play the game in a really efficient way, right? Well, that's really cool to, I mean, I, I don't really know that much about badminton, so <laughs> it's really we'll cool to, to hear. Yeah, we will have to. I mean, in all honesty, I, I reckon my my dad's maybe taken me out like to the court maybe one or two times to play and like, I don't, obviously had not continued, so not very good at it. <laughs> um, so, How did your journey evolve from, I guess, being introduced to the sport, loving the sport, but then going down this path of becoming a professional athlete in the sport? Because um, obviously that's been a journey for you, right? During your younger years as well, um, coming
1: up. So how did that happen for you? Because I got into it through this program, my whole... Um, process was kind of fast-tracked and it was very like you are trying to be the best and go to the Olympics, whereas a lot of kids my age would have just kind of been playing for fun more and like as a social sport, like they still want to do well. But I was kind of groomed in a way to like go into the national team and then win medals. Um, So yeah, in that aspect, throughout high school, I was doing like before school trainings, like 5.30 to 7.30. And then I'd go to school straight after that and I'd be like hobbling down the stairs because I'd have DOMS everywhere. I'd be falling asleep in class and the teachers were like, oh, it's okay kind of thing. Um, and then it got to my last year of high school and I split my VCE. So I did two subjects in year 11 and three in year 12. So I kind of accelerated a little bit. And then in my last year, I was training a lot more, getting integrated into the national team and traveling a lot more. So I I missed like nearly half the year of my year 12 and did exams over in Thailand at like 4am and that kind of thing. Oh my God, what a crazy life, especially at that age too, you know, going through VCE and
0: competing and then doing, you know, having all that pressure. That's that's pretty incredible. Um, so, you know, how, how much of this, this is a really, the thing that I like to ask, you know, with different things, not just badminton or sport, but when people are, you know, reach a certain level of success in a particular area, you know, there's this concept of having uh, part of it as being you know, part natural talent and part the hard work that you put in on top of it, because you could be you know, naturally talented at something, but then not really do anything with it um, and, and nothing really happens. So from your perspective, how much do you think uh, your success has been attributed to your natural talent and then the hard work that you've put in.
1: Yeah, so personally mine's an interesting combination because I in badminton 12 years old is actually quite late to start. Like most kids start when they're 5 or so and in you know Asia, China, Indonesia they're getting taken out of school at like 12 to go professional and they do like they're just training 8 hours a day kind of thing. So for me, it was like mostly hard work. So when I started to get into it more and more, I was always getting the, getting to training early. I'm super like, I question the coaches a lot, question other players. I always want to improve. I wasn't going to be like, how do I do this? Um, so I'm very uh, proactive and trying to improve as well. Um, and then natural, naturally, I'm not actually that good in the badminton technical sense because probably because I started later, but physically and like athletically, I'm quite naturally good in, uh, in that way. So um, that's something that benefited me in the game. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard work that has kind of got me to where I am and always knowing kind of that I started behind has pushed me to try and catch up and put in the extra hours and try and train um, smarter and get that quality in when I couldn't have that kind of um, quantity compared to others. Yeah, gotcha. I think, you know,
0: that's a really great way to kind of, um, I guess, preface your training by having this sense that like you have to, you're almost, um, yeah, you have to catch up in a way so it just drives you a little bit further, right? So, um, obviously, hearing what you've done throughout your, high, you know, throughout high school, having to train before school and all that kind of stuff, which a lot of kids would not have had to do, you know, get up early and do all that stuff on top of their just normal studies and whatnot. So how did you manage to cultivate your discipline and routine uh, just in terms of like, I guess, yeah, just making sure that you were doing that every day and staying on top of that routine?
1: Yeah. So I guess I've kind of just always had this desire in me to be the best. Like even when I was doing those other sports, I always wanted to go to the Olympics or like when I was into circus, I wanted to go be in Cirque du Soleil. Like I've always had this desire to be at like the pinnacle of whatever I was doing. So um, yeah, just knowing that like I don't want to lose and I just want to beat people just made me want to be disciplined because I knew that's what you had to do to get the results you wanted. Um, like my mom is super resilient and growing up, she raised us three kids pretty much by herself and I learned from her that like, you know, you wake up, you don't want to do something. You just like, you have to just go do it. So I I pretty much never miss training. Like even when I'm sick, I'm like, my mentality is if you can walk, like if you can stand up, then you can stand on court and do something simple. So um, (laughs) I, I push myself like pretty hard in that aspect. And yeah, I just know that like if there's that goal and you want to achieve it, then you're going to do whatever it takes to get there. Otherwise, yeah. Why do you kind of have that goal?
0: (laughs) Right. Like, so it's just like this kind of gung ho, like I've got to go for it kind of thing. So then where do you, do you have this sense of when, you know, you're pushing yourself too hard? Do you ever get to a point where you're like, I've pushed myself past my limits. And so I need to take a step back and like have an active rest day or something like that. Do you have those moments or no?
1: Yeah, physically, I've become like super aware of my body because I have had quite a few injuries, especially when I was younger, um, like growing and that kind of thing. So I'm super aware of how my body's feeling and I, I know now like how far I can push it and The good thing with badminton and sport in general is that there's usually other ways you can train around like a certain... So, you know, if my feet are sore, then I can do more technical stuff or I can do upper body or stuff on the bike that's low impact. So it's kind of always finding alternatives and trying to still improve in some way. Mm, Yeah. So So in terms of physically, you know, where your boundaries are, but then
0: mentally, do you have a point where you're like... Uh, this is this is I've just pushed myself too far mentally, where it's like getting to me to a point where it's not healthy for me to keep to keep pushing through that barrier.
1: Yeah, there's definitely been times when. Um... I have kind of hit that point. Probably the most recent one was the 2018 Commonwealth Games when me and my partner had a lot of pressure to win a medal there. And we were like the first seed and pretty much the whole year before a lot of like spotlight was on us in our training. And yeah, we were really, we just felt a lot of pressure and we were we kind of went too serious. So we stopped enjoying it. And then when the Commonwealth Games came around, there was a lot of like angst within our team because of how we had been treated like in a favorited kind of way and yeah it just had a really negative impact on our result in the end because we finished fourth and um yeah like mentally we were kind of all our relationships and everything were disintegrating so that was really a wake-up call and to just kind of come back to making sure we're enjoying stuff and that also like within sport it's really easy because you want to do so well to go really hard but it can also not be maintainable. Like, yeah, you might win a world championship when you're 16 years old, but if you want to quit by the time you're 18, then is that really what you wanted kind of in the end? Whereas Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, a lot of sports careers, even in tennis, you can see them playing up to like 38 years old. Um, If you want to have that long career, you kind of need to make sure you're enjoying it and there's so much travel involved, you need to make sure like you enjoy the people you're traveling with, you're fitting in the things that make you happy as opposed to just grinding every single day because it is pretty much like your life. Um, like it's just all year round, you have this, you are an athlete. So yeah, you have to make sure you enjoy it.
0: Yeah, this is like an all encompass. It's like a lifestyle, obviously. And, and one of those things where you would only be hanging out with other athletes, obviously, uh, most of the time in training and whatnot competing. Um, so that's a really interesting point to, to know that that you do need to incorporate some sort of balance in your life anyways. Otherwise, it isn't maintainable. I feel like even if it's not in professional sport, um, just generally speaking in life, that's just a, a really good way, you know, to approach life anyways. If you hit it too hard at work or if you hit it too hard in, you know, one different area, the other areas suffer, you know. Um, so what's the what's the goal for you then? Because, you know, when you're talking about... Uh, you know, maybe you want to hit like a, a title or something like that. But like you said, if you hit it too hard, you know, you're going to want to quit or something like that in a couple of years. So, in terms of your goals uh, as an athlete, do you look at your career as, I guess, a bigger picture where you, you know, what are your goals really in that space? Yeah. So,
1: yeah I'm at the point now where it is more like long-term. So, you know, if I peek around like 30, then that's fine with me. As long as I'm still enjoying it and I feel like I'm improving and making progress, then I'm pretty happy with that. And obviously that I can support this lifestyle as well. That's that's important. So I'm not like living out of a shoebox or anything like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And I think if I have those two things, progress and enjoying it, then I'm pretty happy with um, how I'm going. And yeah, hopefully from that, if I have those two things, then my level will show in titles and results. Mm, and, you
0: know, I'm really glad that you kind of picked up on the the thing because I guess, you know, so often too, like we hear people who have been successful, you know, to varying degrees in their respective areas that um, when they reach a goal, uh, it it's not exactly what they thought it would be when they get there, you know. So, you might have heard, you know, lots of people talk about this where they, you know, try to aspire to a particular point and then when they got there, it was not exactly what they thought it was going to be. Um, so, you know, what is, what has it been like for you? Have you had like a, have one of the titles that you have achieved now been one of your big goals that you managed to achieve? And then what was that experience like for you when you actually got there?
1: Yeah. So, I guess the biggest achievement was when we beat a top 10 pair at the Dutch Open. And that one was really special as well because it was a really tough match and we lost to this pair three times like a few months earlier. So it really cemented that we had improved and that we were up there with like the best in the world. Um, Comparing that to like we won the Canada Open, which is the same level tournament, but we won it more easily Um, And it didn't like it was still special, but it's not as special, I guess, when you don't have to necessarily fight tooth and nail to get there. And like the circumstances can really change how you perceive that title, regardless of how prestigious prestigious it is. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, maybe when there's people that are just winning everything, then then they're like, oh, you know, like it's too easy kind of thing or it wears off that. Yeah, that can be part
0: of it. Yeah. So it's more the meaning around it um, is the almost like the the process or the journey that you have to go through in order to achieve that goal. So, you know, one of the things that I do like to use with my, you know, coaching my clients, and it's not just in, you know, um, fitness, but um, the goal tends to be a point, but it's who you have to become along the way, along the journey that really makes that, uh, that whole process um, meaningful. And, You know, the the goal could be anything. It doesn't really matter because it's always going to shift. Once you hit that goal, uh, you've got another goal that you want to go and achieve. So what are your goals now moving forward, uh, you know, into the future? Like do you have
1: like this massive goal that you now want to work towards? Yeah, so the main one is the Olympics. So that was obviously meant to happen end of July this year, and has been pushed back one year exactly. So yeah, our tournaments hopefully will start going from January next year. So just preparing for those, and then hopefully the Olympics goes ahead as well. So that will be the next major goal. And in the meantime, just trying to keep up my fitness. Um, We are able to do a bit of on-court training, which is amazing. So just trying to improve what we can and try and come back fitter and stronger and better to go in the new year. Yeah. Yeah. I bet like
0: it's probably quite frustrating at the moment, not being able to um, dive right into full training at the moment. But I know a lot of people listening, um, you know, will be interested to know what your health and fitness routine is like, you know, as a professional athlete, what do you do specifically to maintain your fitness? You know, do you have technique? Do you have strength and conditioning? Like what's the cost training sort of, um, what does that look like for you?
1: Yeah. So outside of COVID times, usually we train six times, uh, six days a week, so Monday to Saturday usually with maybe two sessions a day on two days, so a morning and afternoon session. Um, each of those will go for about two hours, so that's like sixteen hours a week on court. And the priority for us is the on court stuff because um, we just need so many hours on court to kind of get all the technical aspects uh, up to par. And then outside of that, I usually have three lifting sessions a week. Um, now with a bit more time, I split that into two lower body and one upper body, because we are predominantly like need to be super strong in our legs because we're jumping a lot, um, changing direction all the time. Um, and then outside of that, we'll usually do one to two conditioning sessions, so on the bike or running, depending on what our bodies bodies are like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's mainly it, and then. Outside of that, we usually like get to training 45 to 30 minutes beforehand, do our kind of prehab stuff, our warm up. And then afterwards we'll do maybe some core stuff and stretching and foam rolling, all that kind of stuff as well. Mm. Um, Yeah, I have usually physio like twice, once to two times a week on massage once a week. I haven't had a massage in so long and it's like the first thing I want to do. <laughs> when people can going actually touch people. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that'll be really, really nice. So, um, you know, do you have, I, I'm really curious because this is so fascinating, fascinating to me. Do you have a coach, that oversees your whole training regime and sets this out for you or do you have specific coaches for the different um parts of your training you know obviously do you, do you have a um a coach you work with specifically for badminton technique and then you know strength and conditioning coach and then you know do you how does it kind of work
1: or look like So for our Australian team, we have a strength and conditioning coach and then there's two badminton coaches. So one of them is the high performance director who is overseeing like the whole program more. And he also does a lot more of like the tournament planning side and like hotels and travel and that kind of stuff. And then he'll also do um, like match analysis and a few on-court sessions with us and travel to tournaments with us. And then we have another uh, another coach who does a lot of the on-court sessions Um, So he'll write the programs with the other coach and like feed us and um, yeah, do all the feed stuff. <laughs> it's feed called, you. it's called feeding. Yeah. Like, so that he'll like hold all the shuttles and hit them to us. So. Oh,
0: like, I thought you meant
1: like feeding you as in food. <laughs> no. So
0: it's like, yeah, feeding the shuttles. <laughs> right. yeah. That makes more sense. I'm like, okay, that's, that's really luxurious having someone feed you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, do you have, obviously, you know, it's quite regimented. You've got this program and, you know, all your specific training. Do you have, um, specific like pre, um, pre and post tournament rituals and habits that you do. So prior to a match, um, are there certain things that you need to do to get you or get your body and your mind, you know, geared to perform well when you are on basically?
1: Yeah. So with our tournaments, they pretty much last a week. So it might start on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday and then the finals will be on the Sunday. So depending if you win or lose, you could play through to the Sunday or be done earlier. And um, with that, we usually arrive in the country the Sunday or the Monday. So not that early before it because usually tournaments are back to back. So you're literally going from one country for one week to another one, another week. Um, We'll get a hit in the training hall beforehand. And then... The day of the tournament, you get your like the schedule for when you play the night before. So you don't actually have that much time to prepare. Um, and before that, we will have seen who our opponent is and done some match analysis, watch some of their matches, um, figure out some of their weaknesses, some things that we need to try and implement to try and beat them. And then on the day of the match. Um, so if we're in the morning, we'll probably just get up earlier and do a bit of body prepping, like some stretching, some quick, fast kind of agility stuff, and then head to the court's and we'll have about, we'll get there about an hour beforehand, do our warm up, um, and then go on court. And if we have an afternoon match, we might do a bit longer like session in the morning. So maybe if we have a chance to go to the courts and have a hit, we'll get our touch and also do some short, fast stuff as well. So that's pretty much how it works.
0: Yeah, nice. It's so, I, I think your life is just so incredible. It's so amazing. And you're so young as well. Like it's just insane. Um <laughs> So, you know one thing I do like to ask a lot of my guests on the show is um, talking about lessons and life lessons. And you know we learn life lessons at all different ages. and um, you know, sometimes we learn lessons that have nothing to do with the thing that we're actually doing. you know, um, so I often talk about, you know, um, you know, I've been a professional actor for a really long time, and the the biggest lessons I've learned from being an actor has been, How to deal with rejection and failure. They're the big lessons of, and you know, learning about myself, self awareness um, outside of the actual craft of acting. So I'm really curious to know what your biggest lessons have been from being, firstly, a professional athlete, but also badminton, you know, more specifically. What are the biggest takeaways that
1: you have learned so far? Um, I guess some of the biggest ones are just like consistency and putting in the, hours and doing the boring stuff to get the results. Like sometimes it's, it's not all the glamorous stuff and maybe you don't even notice the results as you're going because it's like such small chipping away at it. But, um, just having that foundation of all that, that kind of stuff and just steadily improving, like can reap such rewards. Mm. Um, I guess in this, in the travel sense, being like self-aware of your mental health and, um, kind of the things that you need to keep in your daily routine to keep you happy and uh, yeah, like content in your life is really important because we're thrown into so many different environments and cultures and um, like different people around us. So figuring out, you know, how many times we need to call our family each week or when we need to get outside if we're in a big city or when we need to go by ourselves and find somewhere quiet, that kind of thing. Um, I've learned a lot about that as I've traveled and been in all these different places. Mm. So there's um, this element of of self care that comes into taking care of your
0: your well being. Um, yeah. Well, I'm really curious then to know what your what your daily kind of habits are that you need to do to maintain your uh, mental and emotional health. What do you kind of what do you need to do?
1: Yeah, I'm not super strict with it, but the main thing I always need is exercise. Like even during lockdown, I know that like some days you just wake up and you just like want to stay in bed longer. But for me, that really just draws on. And then I just get really down about certain things and not being productive. And like, as soon as I get exercise done, I just feel so much, I don't know, content. And like, I've done something with my life today. <laughs> so, even <laughs> if it's just like lifted things, you know? Yeah. So For me, that's really important. And then uh, definitely the connection, like realizing when I need to talk to people and have that connection because I'm, I'm really content being by myself and doing my own thing. But sometimes, yeah, I don't realize that I need it, but I, I know I do. So that's yeah. really important as well for me. Yeah.
0: I'm quite similar to you, actually. Like uh, the, the movement thing, it has to happen. It just, for my mental health, I feel like it's just so good. Like you said, it makes you feel like you're productive and you've done something, even if it is, you know, if I take an active rest day, it's at least a walk. But, you know, if you're doing a proper workout or whatever, it's, you know, you've moved your body, you get those endorphins going and, and it does do something chemically in your body where you literally feel just so much better for moving. Um, and the same thing with with connection, I feel, especially during this time, it's, you know, quite a, a difficult time we're all going through, you know, with lockdown that it is so important to maintain that um, connection with people. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that you you touched on this aspect of mental health, because this is one thing that I know that, you know, you have opened up about publicly and your experiences dealing with, particularly, you know, with your brother and things that have happened with him in terms of mental health and illness. So can you kind of, you know, talk about that and what that experience was like for you and how that has impacted you?
1: Yeah, so personally, I haven't really had many issues with experience, experiencing mental health um, stuff. But yeah, my brother has, uh, well, he committed suicide at the start of last year. And prior to that, he'd had um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and kind of things coming and going. And he was in and out of psychiatric wards all the time. So growing up, that was, um, that really built up my resilience and kind of threw me into very traumatic and high stress situations when you are around somebody that is so uh, up and down and volatile. So yeah, it was really, I had to grow up very fast with that and it had to teach me how to take care of my family, take care of my mom who was, you know, his main carer. And uh, yeah, just seeing this whole side of like the mental health system and how vulnerable it is, it just, yeah, I grew up very fast being around that. Yeah, I bet, um, you know, first I'm so sorry to hear about your brother because I I do, you
0: know, I've never experienced anything like that and I can't even imagine, you know, what that would be like to go through something like that, um, you know, with someone so close to you in your family as well. Um, and also then, you know, being around, like you said, being around that and having to grow up really fast, you know, and look after your family, how... I guess, how were you able to do that? I mean, at such a young age and then having to having to also, you know, you have got this professional career at such a young age as well. You know, how were you able to manage all of that?
1: Well, I think when you're in that situation, you don't really have a choice. Like it's your family and you want to take care of them and do whatever you can to protect them. So I was just always trying to put my family first and sport really kind of was my escape, both literally as well when I could travel overseas and like, I didn't have to have that responsibility anymore because I wasn't there. So, um, I mean, it was hard when I was away to know that I couldn't help out and be there. So there was a bit of guilt, but, um, also it was kind of an escape and it made me really appreciate like the training when I could just, you know, you just have to, you can't you can't think of all that stuff when you're training because you're just trying not to get smashed by a shuttle and you're just putting everything into your training. So yeah, it was definitely a good distraction for me. And I think it definitely helped me from a lot of stuff that could have alternatively been my life, I think. Mm, And
0: I do, you know, I do feel that this connection between movement and the thing is, you know, a lot of the guests, pretty much all of my guests that I've spoken to and, you know, people in my life outside of the podcast, we all come to different movement practices at different points in our life. And often when it is, um, when we go through something difficult or stressful that's going on in our personal life, we find our way or, or a sport or a movement practice finds us at that particular time. Uh, and helps us through because it gives our mind something to focus on Um, obviously makes us feel good in our body but um, gives us that outlet I suppose to unload that stuff that we're dealing with outside you know um, of that sport you know for me it's been um, boxing um, which is a sport that I never would have ever thought that I would particularly really enjoy improving on and the effect that it has had on my life, I, you know, I feel the same, it's been the same as what you've sort of said. It's kind of, kind of like, it's giving something to you to kind of, you know, um, I guess fuel you or like at least restore that energy, that mental energy for dealing with the other crap that you've got going on in your life, right?
1: Yeah. Kind of thing.
0: Yep. Yeah. So how do you think, you know, this whole experience, because that it, it's, it's, it's such a big thing to have gone through and, you know. um How do you think that this has changed your perspective of life and your outlook on life?
1: Yeah. Well, I was in a, I was actually in Malaysia when my brother um, did pass away. And I had to play a tournament that day. And I was just, you know, just trying to switch back to like athlete mode and not wanting to lose and that kind of thing. But from then on, it's really just made you, made me appreciate kind of how little time that we can have with people. Like, you know, people can walk outside, get hit by a bus. Like you never know when you're going to see someone again. So really just being so um, expressive of how like how much I care about somebody and what they mean to me and making sure to check in on friends and all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, just being grateful for the things you do have and like not not getting caught up on all the dumb stuff that life has.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I really love that. I feel that, you know, especially, and too, like with COVID, I feel like this particular period of time has, has um, brought that stuff to the surface too, just all the things that we maybe would take for granted, you know, if pre-COVID or pre-big massive challenges in our lives happening, uh, it forces us to just go, hang on a second, you know, my life is really good what i have in my life and to be grateful so i really love that approach to life um so one other thing that i'm really curious to talk to you about because in all honesty i haven't spoken about this to many people um obviously we both have asian heritage and um you know both being australian i i'm really curious to know what your experience has been like growing up in australia and you have both um Asian and Caucasian background, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. so I'm half Chinese, half Australian.
0: Yeah. So um, what has your experience been like? And in terms of culturally, how have you felt? Have you felt like you fit in? Because I know for me, you know, um, I never feel like I fit in anywhere, you know, um, growing up in Australia, you know, um, in drama class, I'd always be like the one Asian actress or like even in the Pilates studio, there's like like one or two other Pilates trainers that I know that are Asian, right? Uh, But then growing up, um, quite Aussie, you also don't fit in with the Aussie people. So what's your experience been like?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm kind of unique. Like I've I've never experienced any ounce of racism like ever, which is kind of weird. Yeah. I mean it's that's great. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. it's sad that we think that's weird that there isn't racism. Right. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. But um I think I've never had that thing of not fitting in because I've always had so many different cultures of friends, like in in primary school. Like yeah, I've just always had like I've had Asian friends. My best friend now is Kenyan. Um, like I've just been surrounded by so many different cultures in, um, going like through school that I've never felt, uh, yeah, not part of anything really. And it's funny because my dad passed away when I was three years old and he was the Chinese side of me. So, but he was also very Westernized when he was brought, uh, came to Australia with his mom when he was six years old. So, um, I didn't really have that Asian upbringing cause I was mainly raised by my mom who is the Australian side. And then it was funny when I found badminton because in badminton, especially in Australia, it's so Asian-dominated because of just the culture that um, Asian, like that Asia has with badminton. So the parents will play, and then they'll get their kids playing, and so it's just it's just the sport that they go to more as opposed to you know tennis or swimming or that kind of thing. So. Then I felt like in badminton, I wasn't as Asian. So I was kind of getting this cultural education through my sport and I was, you know, traveling to China every year and like my first few tournaments were in Taiwan and Singapore. And so I was kind of getting reconnecting with this Asian side of me through the sport, which was really amazing. And through that, um, I wanted to start learning Mandarin Chinese four years ago. So um, I've been learning that and I'm like basic fluent in basic, have like the basic fluency. How the hell
0: did you do that? Oh my goodness. Guys, (laughs) so just so you know, freaking learning Chinese is like the hardest freaking thing to do as an (laughs) adult, because I know, you know, when you're a kid, um, it's easy to obviously pick it up, but um, oh my goodness, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. So I started learning that because I deferred my sports science degree when I was traveling so much. And I just like to still have the routine of like uh, learning stuff and getting educated. So yeah, I picked up Chinese and I've been- You're going to have that. to teach me how, because I, re- I I, <laughs> one of my
0: um agents one time said, you need to learn how to speak Chinese so that you can go for these Chinese roles. I'm like, I'll try. And then looking at the thing, I'm like, this is just so hard. And I like maybe did it for a couple of weeks. I'm like, I just don't know how I'm going to ever pick this up. There's just so, it's a a very um, difficult language to learn, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's super, it's super hard. There's like 10 million, you know, there's just so many characters, but it's really interesting once you actually start to learn it to understand that like the strokes and their characters are more like based off images of the word. So it's kind of starts to make sense because they'll put, you know how there's all those different components to one character. Like each mm. one will mean like, something might mean water and something might mean mouth and then it'll be like drink, you know, that kind of thing. So right. it kind of its own little system. Gotcha. Um, but it kind of makes you understand as well how Asians have, or Chinese have that, um, uh, what's the word? that stereotype of being, you know, so good at maths and everything, because even just learning that language is like, you get so many study habits out of that. There's so much repetition and so much discipline, even just simply learning the language. So right. it kind of makes sense. That just freaks at a lot of <laughs> other stuff to do with like learning and numbers and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And it's kind of, it's almost like um, you learn the culture through the language, you know, in a way, because there is so much um, which is really cool because I feel like, you know, like you said, going into badminton, which, you know, when I was kind of doing the research for before our conversation, I, I you know, thought badminton was an Asian sport originally, but it's not because it, it's it's dominated by Asian now, but it was originally, um, I think, founded in British India. So, and it was really popular with Europeans, you know, back, back, back in the day. And then obviously mm-hmm. now it's become quite dominated by um you know, Asian athletes. So, you know, that's really cool that you're able to connect back into Asian culture through the sport and then through the language. Um, So, you know, how else has it been for you just, I guess, um, because obviously your mum is Caucasian and then in terms of having family that are Asian, are you still connected to Asian family that you have?
1: Yeah. So we have um, a bit of family in Melbourne and Sydney that I see quite often. And then also when I do go back to China, I usually catch up with family there because I have family in like Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Beijing. Um, so that's really nice as well. And we went on a big family holiday there when I was eight years old. So early 2000s. Um, and so it was, yeah, it's really good to stay in contact with them and learn more about um, our ancestry and that kind of thing as well. Yeah,
0: I feel like it's... I mean, this is something that I feel like I need to do more of is connect back to my Asian heritage. You know, growing up in Australia, I feel like I'm so westernised and so, you know, my parents brought me up so uh, Aussie that I really just... And I don't even most of the circles that I run in or industries that I work in are mostly Caucasian, you know, Caucasian people. So, therefore, there is this disconnect, you know. Um, I think the, the most that I've taken away from my Asian parts of um, upbringing are um, the shoes at the door and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, getting red packets, which is like, you know, the best thing ever, but yeah. that's it. <laughs> Um, so I'm really excited that we got to connect actually. So, um, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I feel like we all learnt a lot in terms of, you know, your process and understanding the behind the scenes of being an athlete and what it really takes to, you know, um, succeed in area, any area of life really. So thank you so much for being on the show. No worries. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. So guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, make sure you screenshot it and you can tag Gronya at Gronya Somerville and also at Rach Active. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Rach Active podcast.